Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a podcast that explores the art and science of leadership. I'm Kate Arms. I'm Alyssa Dickman. I'm Nitya Shaker. Each episode, we deep dive into one leadership book to share what we liked and what we think you can apply to your own personal leadership journey. Today, we are talking about Susan Cain's new book, Bittersweet. Many of you may be familiar with Quiet, which I think a lot of people connected to, especially the introverts of the world. Bittersweet is her latest book in which she really talks about sadness as a superpower. Bittersweet explores the power of the bittersweet personality, essentially revealing a misunderstood side of mental health and creativity, while also offering a roadmap to facing things like grief and loss in order to live life to the fullest. Joining us in this discussion about Bittersweet is a very special guest. I'm very, very excited to welcome Rick Andrews to the podcast. Rick is an improviser based in New York City, as am I. He teaches at the Magnet Theater, where I also took improv for many years. And he also teaches in the MFA program at Columbia University. As a trainer and a facilitator, he has worked with hundreds of companies using improvisation improv comedy to help teams work better together and be more effective in their communication, in their leadership, and many other things. I am also lucky enough to have taken Rick's class, so I know him in his teaching capacity, and now happy to call him a colleague and a friend. We're so happy to have you, Rick. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I definitely had to stop myself from waving because I forgot this is a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Does it happen to you all the time? We were like, yeah, okay. Everyone out there know that I definitely wave. But Rick, if you could uh, expand on, on what I shared about you, tell our listeners a little bit more about what you do and maybe even your connection to, to this book and this type of work. I'm an improviser. I've been improvising since I was in middle school and uh, it was always something that I was really passionate about. I moved to New York to do grad school in personality and social psychology. So I have a bit of a research psychology background, but I quit after a year to do, to do improv full time. And it's something I've been doing ever since. And I started working with leaders and companies largely from classes like the one that Nitya took with me, you know, where people were taking the class not to be the best improviser, but because they wanted to be a better public speaker. They wanted to work on their creativity. People Mm. kind of just started asking me to come and do this in in workplaces. And it's always so interesting to me. I've never worked in an office, but I've now been inside hundreds of offices and noticing the differences in the, um, just the mood and the way that people operate, how comfortable people are being themselves, how comfortable they feel talking about the real things going on in their life versus how much of a pressure they feel to kind of put on work face. Uh, So yeah, I I kind of come at uh, a lot of this stuff from the improv side of it. And I think that was part of the, the book that I was most interested in and connecting with was both in terms of how do the negative things in our life connect to creativity? Because that's a lot of what I think about in a classroom is how to help people be more creative in the moment. And also like, where is that sweet spot between thinking positively to kind of get yourself to be in a solution-oriented mindset versus on the other side of that, denying the reality of being a person sometimes sucks. Yeah, love that. Th- thanks for sharing. And I'm so excited to, to dive into all that together with, with you and with Kate. And so uh, just to open it up more to the both of you, what did you think? Um, some Some high level thoughts and feelings. I love the book. I absolutely love the book. I am really excited to see that someone whose name is as big as Susan Cain's has written about this because I've been talking about this for decades. 
Mm. Uh, I've been talking about it articulately for at least a decade. I was talking about it inarticulately for years <laughs> before I started finding the vocabulary because it was so hard to get a grasp on. This is the bulk of the work that I do in workplaces. I go in and I'm hired to do software delivery. But what I'm actually doing is helping people talk about what's wrong and facing the problems so yeah. that they can fix them. And if you can't actually embrace the pieces that aren't working, if you can't look at them directly in the face, you can't fix them. Yeah. Was, I was thinking as a teacher of, of students I've had, and I, I think the distinction between someone who's clinically depressed, where there's actually kind of like a solipsism when you're feeling that way, that you're in so much pain that you actually can't, you can't be a good teammate to other people in, in, a, in a way. You're in so much pain, you can't hear them and bring them in in a way. To so that kind of just everyday, you know, daily level of stuff that, that isn't rising to this extreme level and how helpful that can be. But we, we almost talk about those things in the same way. We talk about it as like, oh, if you're in pain, all pain is bad. All right. sadness is bad. Your job is to eliminate all of that. And I like what you said, Kate, some of the stuff that happens in an office space or in, in a workplace, some of the stuff that really drives people crazy and actually makes them really upset or make them feel really despondent is sometimes like not big, big deal stuff. There was air quotes there. Yeah. It's not like, you know, necessarily someone passing away. It's like, sometimes it's just like, someone's not listening to me. Like they don't respect, yeah. me. you know, it's stuff that yeah. like on paper doesn't look like a big deal, but it can make someone feel really despondent and upset because they spend so much of their life at work. And, and so there, there is, there can be kind of a lot of, a lot of pain and like yeah. suffering, yeah. even if the stakes are really low, what you do for that job is not quote unquote important uh, in the grand scheme of things, even if it's not a life or death matter, that's where you spend your life. So it can still feel very upsetting to people. Yeah. I'm really glad that you sort of put clinical depression on the spectrum with this, because for me, it's very much connected. And it's actually because of my own experience with existential depression that I'm good at this. And it's because I went through therapy and yeah. I was medicated mm -hmm. and they didn't work. What worked mm -hmm. was I found a couple of teachers in spiritual traditions who had coped with their own depression by actually becoming present to it and actually being with it in a very, very sort of profoundly self-observation, what is this actually going on piece, plus a psychotherapist who had seen that therapy and meds weren't working and who'd written a book on the behavioral change that needs to happen. If you've gotten really good at the not engaging with the world that happens when you're clinically depressed, if you get that as your behavioral habits, you actually mm -hmm. have to undo those habits while you're doing the mental stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm busy waving my hands here because like this, it happens all simultaneously and it gets mixed up into each other. And so actually it's because I embraced going into the darkness in my own healing journey that I can sit with other people's stuff. Yeah. And so I think that acknowledging that it's all kind of of a piece. Yeah, yeah right. No, that's right. I, also, I mean, I think what you both are getting at is integration in a sense, right? You don't, you yep. don't eliminate the bitter or kind of overemphasize the sweet. It's integrate. And, and that's where the peace is. That's where the healing is. But also I think what comes up in this book a lot is that's where the, the fun is sometimes, or that's where the, the kind of the elevated feeling of living and being alive actually comes from. I mean, she gets into so many examples from, you know, just art and music and all kinds of things that we love that aren't perfectly happy or perfectly funny, but have a little bit of that darkness or a little bit of that sadness. I think the ones that we connect to the most probably most effectively integrate those into kind of one whole experience. I don't think what's being said here is let's be sad all the time and like, let's watch sad movies all the time. <laughs> it's actually bring these experiences that feel pulls apart and certainly that I think corporate work makes us feel like are pulls apart, right? And actually bring them together and say like, no, 
no, we actually, we become more whole and I think quite possibly more effective in what we're doing when we integrate those things. I feel like half of me on this podcast is going to be like, that reminds me of improv. (laughs) (laughs) Which is perfect. Which is perfect. Like, please. Um, Yeah. But that thing of just acknowledging the reality, I mean, that's the ba- on a basic level, you know, improvisation is about building off of this other person and we're trying to build this shared reality together. And if I don't acknowledge what you said or did or what I said or did, which might be different than what I thought, we can't actually move forward together. And I think so much of yeah. uh, what you were saying, Kate, is it's just like, yeah, you have to just kind of sit with it. <laughs> you know, if you pretend like it, it doesn't exist, you pretend like it's not real, you're always going to be an improv, you know, I always say you're, you're going to be doing a different scene than the one the audience wants. <laughs> Acceptance doesn't necessarily mean that I don't want things to change or that I'm not going to let them grow it just means that you're kind of seeing them as they are or closer to as they are versus living in the future your past self wanted which it was interesting at the being the pandemic i felt like i heard that from a lot of especially my non-improv friends when i had conversations with them it was a lot of oh we were going to blank like we mm-hmm. you know they were still really dwelling on the stuff that, that they wanted to have happen that now wasn't happen it wasn't until it was like well what am i doing now they yeah. started to move forward a little bit yeah um, yeah i think a lot about the leadership training that nithya and i did about working together and co-leadership. If you have a project where you're agreed on what the project are and and what the sort of result is going to be, part of what we were trained to do was to say, okay, we're in agreement. We've defined that clearly enough that we know that we're both heading in the same direction. You get to be you and I get to be me. And we create from what each other gives us rather than insisting that the other person creates what I would do. So it's not two of me (laughs) trying to do this. It's actually somebody who's very different from me moving in the same direction and we create from each other and it's it's definitely like in the improv world it's accepting what's been offered by the by your improv partner just in a leadership context just on the level of creativity that you're going to get better outcomes that way because you know uh you're going to say or do a thing that i would never think of and that's going to make me think of an idea that you would never say or do right and so the fact that we have different experiences as you were talking earlier too it made me think of how there is something about getting older and having more life experiences to draw from that when i have a student who is coming to improv for the first time but they're you know in their 40s instead of in their 20s there's just a lot of like they've had breakups they've had jobs they've been fired they went to the grand canyon when you end up in a scene that you know in a certain life situation there's some kind of parallel thing to pull from and that goes for like the negative stuff too i think but right. you have a sense of what it's like to have been to a funeral sometimes people are able to more quickly kind of find a way to play with a sense of i don't know like a real voice behind it versus just okay i'm kind of trying to t- technically do the correct thing and, and, and get an outcome it's just like okay well what do i think about the situation yeah i mean the subtitle of the book talks about longing and she talks about mm-hmm. longing as a thing throughout the book. And for me, that longing is like when we're kids, we have this natural instinctive move towards what's pleasurable and move away from what's not pleasurable. And that is that is how we navigate the world. And the other thing we have an instinct for is to finding someone who can actually take care of us. Like those are the two mm, instincts that mm-hmm. we have. Everything else, what the human beings have is the capacity to learn. What happens and part of the learning, I think, is that at some point in our lives, we realize that if all we do is avoid the negative and go for the happiness, the cost of that ends up being much more than we expected. We sort of run ourselves into corners because we've said no to so much of life by avoiding the fact that there's all this stuff that actually hurts. I think for me too, it was like a long-term, short-term thing. I'm thinking about like movies I, I started to love, like when I became a teenager and started wanting sad stuff, right? Yes. Like music and yes. movies. 
Uh-huh. Maybe in the short term, it was a little more challenging or upsetting, but then in the long term, it would create this kind of longer lasting feeling, you know, warm kind of feeling in, in me versus just, yeah, watching something that's dumb and fun. It's like, yeah, it's fun while it lasts, but it's candy. It's not, it doesn't fuel your body. You know what I mean? It doesn't give you the calories, the like, you know, nutrition you need. So you can eat a bunch of candy, but you'll feel sick afterwards versus like having a real meal with like actual stuff. It's interesting. My partner is chronic health issues and the more like pain and stuff we're dealing with in the medical stuff, the less we love watching movies, but the less like hard movies we watch, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. Like we, we always have a list every year of the movies that come out and like the, the like really fun movies get watched really quickly some, yeah. some years, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then we end up with this list of just really depressing films at the end of the year that we like have been putting off. <laughs> right, if right. If it's been like a tough year, you know? You're speaking a lot to just this, this, this beautiful sort of blend or balance mm-hmm. that we consciously or unconsciously seek or gravitate towards in life where we're like, actually life wouldn't be as full or fulfilling if it was all like the dumb, funny, whatever. <laughs> but I also love what you're saying where it's like actually it has to be the right balance like you also can't have too much of the of the heavy dark sad contemplative in a way I think we see what we need in in a sense so so if if things are really light I find right things are really light and fun and I've had a really great couple of weeks or couple months that's when I'll pull out the really really deep Mm -hmm. dark sad (laughs) makes me want to cry song or that's when I'll go watch an old movie that I'm like oh this is so depressing I'll never watch it for 10 years like that's when I'm drawn to it because I think that is the the human existence is like we want a nice blend and maybe what that blend is is different for different people I'm sure I don't think it's an authentic existence really without that you said the word contemplative which I think is important here because it's not just like sad right it's also it's thoughtful it's the we said the word longing it's somber right like stuff stuff that makes you think stuff that's not maybe straightforward it's like all of that I think comes into bittersweets it's dark it's anger it's like grief it's all yeah I'm not drawn to like like soap operas yeah yeah <laughs> which which are sad, but, but lack maybe a depth that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that would allow you to be reflective about your life. Yeah, the word that comes to me a lot when I think about bittersweet is poignant. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's that place of our relationships. Like I'm a parent, right? I talk about my kids quite a bit. No, I don't talk about my kids. I talk about my approach to parenting quite a bit on this podcast. Part of what is so powerful as a parent is kids grow up so fast. Part of the poignancy of a six-month-old is that a nine-month-old is an entirely different human being in some Mm -hmm. real ways. Can I ask about toxic positivity? Yes. I, think, I was thinking about this. It's it's something I definitely believe in and is bad. And I see it in workplaces. But I also, a lot of what I'm doing with folks is helping them to think more positively. And I was trying to kind of figure out for me, what is the difference between being able to think generously about other people's ideas in order to actually build on them more effectively? When does that cross over into toxic positivity? Because I, I, I think there's a sweet spot in the middle between not just being an unnecessary downer or too solipsistic about your own ideas and not letting other people's things in versus just the like, we love it here. It's so great. Everyone right. on the team, we all had such a great time and like you all clearly hate this like yeah yeah so Nithya I'm gonna let you sort of dive into this because this is one of my soapboxes and I don't want to sort of run all over the conversation (laughs) I can I can see your toe just like reaching up to the soapbox (laughs) no I love it um and and please feel free to jump in I I will I will I just want to not go there first yeah, Listeners, so. you can't see, but Kate has been constructing a, so- a literal soapbox out of wood <laughs> in her apartment. Uh, she's not, she's stepping up, she's stepping onto it. No, yeah, 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 yeah. The <laughs> joke, the joke some of my friends made is that I need to have a picture of an, I have, need to have a print of an Andy Warhol soapbox behind yeah. me. Yep, yep. <laughs> <In> my office. <laughs> 
Oh gosh. Yes. Toxic positivity. It's a great question, Rick. So I'm back to something you said earlier about improv, which is accepting other people's experience and what they're offering. Mm. In my mind, it starts to border on toxic when you're denying somebody else's experience. Yes. I think there's there's one, it's one thing to accept someone's experience, whatever it may be, and, and kind of encourage or infuse some positivity or hope, let's say optimism into that. Cause that's, that feels like integration, right? It's yeah. like, I know what you're going through and it's hard and like, here's something I can offer versus like making their experience wrong starts to feel toxic. Don't cry or, or, or don't be so negative all the time or don't like that starts to feel like shutting down and that feels toxic to me. I mean, maybe that's simplistic, but that's my kind of take on it. We don't talk much about, or at least in, I, when I'm part of the leaders or whatever, I don't hear much discussions about like toxically negative workplaces because there just aren't that many in the, in the way that there were like 50 years ago where people are just like feel 100% comfortable screaming at you. Yeah. <laughs> you know right, I mean? right. Like, I mean, right. Now, like, now, it does still happen, but but less and less, at least in the colleagues yeah. I'm working with, you know, no one's getting like staples thrown at them. But it's the same kind of thing where it shuts you down and shuts yeah. you yes. up, right? The thing about toxic positivity is, is that it's insidious. Yeah. When someone is obnoxiously aggressive, it is so obviously shutting people mm. down that it's easy to say, okay, what do we do about this? And so much of the solution is insidiously ineffective, much harder to unpack. And it's I, hard it's, to describe as someone who wasn't there. If someone's like, through, through a my boss threw a staple at me, he'd be like, oh, wow, that's, let's start the HR complaint. But right. it's just like, they're like, um, kind of obnoxiously nice. The idea you that you can it? be too helpful. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> and in fact, you can absolutely be too helpful. For me, the the things that seem to matter are absolutely that respecting the agency of the other person, respecting the experience of the other person. And so if it's painful to anybody, it's painful to them, whatever it is. And like letting that be okay. Because so much of the toxic helpfulness comes from, I need you to feel okay because I'm not comfortable yeah. with the fact that I care about you and you are hurting. And so now I'm hurting because you are hurting. And if I'm not okay with my own hurting in that moment, I'm going to shut your hurt down. Yeah. Like with the leaders, a lot of it is like using these like yes and ideas to be more empathetic because it forces you to listen to the other person's reality as they're actually experiencing, not like what you thought their reality was, right? That a lot of that has to do with how am I dealing with other people's ideas, states of mind, um, and then I'm just trying to find out more information about it and and be accepting of that and and do what I can to move them that next step. Because the toxic positivity seems to be almost like the meta level of work, right? It's not that like, okay, great, great, great job in that last project. That doesn't feel like toxically positive. It's it's the like, oh, we're this is all so great and the, and everybody in the team is so happy and we have no problems. You know what I mean? It, yes. It's the kind of like yeah. not, not being able to raise the kind of institutional issue or or say what you would need to go further. It, it's not like oh, someone's like helping me on my project and they're being nice about it. It's like, oh, I actually I actually can't get what I need to just get through the day here. No one wants to admit that there's something wrong. Yeah, I think part of the thing is that it's so subtle. And the more you explore into this area and the more you get curious about what this distinction is and you start being self-aware and self-analyzing and looking at the impact that you're having and taking responsibility for the places where you think you're being helpful, but in fact, you're being harmful. What comes down to things is that it's little, little tiny things. And I actually believe that it is about how much our amygdala and our hippocampuses are involved and how much we're functioning from a threat assessment system. When we're actually in a place where our bodies don't feel under threat and there's our creativity and our compassion and our ability to sort of love openly despite everything and to find unconditional acceptance for people. When we are in that space, what we do lands as not toxic. And when we're not in that space, what we 
do frequently lands as toxic. So what we do doesn't change. It's actually the impact that it has based on this really subtle stuff that we may not be in conscious control of, but the people we're in relationship with, their bodies are reading our bodies yeah. and it's transmitting okay. even if they're not conscious of it. Yeah, 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 totally. And then to add another layer to that really, I think, lovely analysis of the subtle kind of subconscious forces of, of like, you know, if we're not at a place of acceptance or wholeness or integration, like it seems out. The other layer on top of that is just kind of corporate storytelling nonsense, right? I mean, I yes. mean oh, so there's also you. this thing of... <laughs> yeah, right. Like, they What's coincide. Story? It's like, uh, we make products and sell them and we try to come to work and do a good job. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, but at the end of the day, the company needs to make a profit, right? <laughs> this is the story. Yeah. Right. What, what leaders then are sitting with much of the time is, is their own stuff, right? Which, Kate, you brought up, right? They have their own stuff. And then there is like what they're being told they have to say or have to encourage or have to cascade down, right, to use that term. And so then once you bring all that together, there's an additional sense of what employees are hearing, here's why these layoffs are actually good, right? Or here's why this change of strategy or direction or these budget cuts or whatever the thing is that may be causing some consternation. Here's why it's actually good for you and why you should be happy about it. That's why I think many times people experience it as a spin and, and as toxic positivity rather than as this like, you know, mm-hmm. encouraging kind of leadership motivational speech that maybe it's intended to be I think people read it differently because this this stuff seeps through. I think people can tell when you're struggling with being with the stuff yourself as a leader and you're Absolutely. told to be like the megaphone of it's a really bad in startup culture. Oh yeah. I was, I was just talking to a leader <laughs> who they were they're having to talk about possibly going through layoffs. You know, they there's just a money problem and like they had stopped taking salaries, the like leadership team didn't tell anybody that. I was like, you should tell people. Like, yeah. you know, it's like, and at the end of the day, it's like I think sometimes at these, you know, small startups, it's like if you're telling everybody our goal is to like rule the world in XYZ, but really your goal is to get hot in two years. You know what I mean? Like we're going to figure that out like pretty quickly. And I think this was where the bittersweet is so powerful. I mean, it's that yes and. I guess that yes and, right? You can have a company where your product has this mission and you as the founders have this mission to get bought. And you can actually have both of those. If you talk about that and say, this product has this mission and we're hoping to get bought by somebody so that we can cash out and go and do the next thing, but this product product can continue doing its thing. That's a story that honors the complicated reality. It at least treats people like adults, right? Like, right. And if people have issues with that, like, hey, oh, you guys are going to make a lot of money. We're going to not make a lot of money. Then maybe the people who work there should be getting more equity. Maybe they're, you know, right? Like what? what right. What, like what it raises all these questions. Yeah. And it it yeah. does. It forces conversations. I think sometimes one of the things that leaders struggle with in areas where there's transparency about this sort of thing is there's a real equity question about out the difference between what the people at the top and the people at the mm-hmm. bottom are making and that gets like surfaced mm. and I, right? I see all the time the kind of like people people have a tendency to care about things that that every like if, if I draw a smiley face on a cup I'm gonna like care about the cup all of a sudden and so yep. when when the, the company has a logo and a brand and like we have a story and we're a family it's like the company is a bunch of names on piece of, pieces of paper the company does does not care about you and, and it is actually functionally set up to, to not care about you and in fact if you let them know that you're now working for a competitor they will make you stand there and have security walk you out of the door that's you know <laughs> my friends wouldn't do that to me right like the, the pretending of care i think is a really tricky thing now individual people can care about each other 
And I think that's the thing. It's just like, yes. I think the thing that feels so insidious is like, you go to all these meetings and everyone's talking about how much they all care about each other. But then you see these examples where like, well, obviously that's not the case, right? So more honest conversations about what it is we're there to do, you know, how, how can we, what, 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 what do we actually need to like be successful? And in general, I am pretty suspicious of, I mean, I'm, I'm suspicious of like work where there isn't an obvious, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, uh, a, a kind of moral guidance to the work. Like I, I worked with companies who are doing yeah. like, you know, health development in, in different countries. And like those people are all came to that job motivated by the work they're yeah. doing, right? Versus, you know, our company, you know, build staplers. Like, I just think it's probably disingenuous to be like, we are all so passionate about staplers. It's like, you're probably not. And that's fine. You know yeah, I mean? right. Honest about <laughs> Most of us are passionate right. about families we want to feed and have <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. right? Like, like, that's really important. Like, like actually, story, yes. I don't know. I just, I never see companies where, where our story is, we do a great job and we all go home. <laughs> right. Like, I, I mean, I'm one of the things, to try that. One of the things that I find really interesting about startup culture is that each individual company is so tenuous mm -hmm. as a company. And what you find from the people who like to work in startup culture is there becomes this extra culture in the industry that is we are like we the engineers or we the product people or we the, the people who like doing recruiting in this high growth space. We all look out for each other and the companies come and go. And that gets to be a really, really interesting dynamic in companies because I've been in companies where my manager has been like, I don't think this company is going to continue for very long. <laughs> so how do we build your career? And it's like, that's not what the company wants them to be doing. Right. But it's absolutely what a person who cares about the long-term yeah. longevity of their relationships yeah. cares about. It's fascinating. One of my first workshops I did a long, long time ago, working with a company, I had a couple meetings with the org and I had, I was in the room with these three other people who were all pretty senior leaders. And, you know, they were like, we just love it here. It's all, you know, all the stuff we're talking about, how, how great it is and how, what a special place it is. And then the person who was walking me out to the door was like, I hate it here. It's so bad. Oh and, God. And over the course of my engagement, each person in that room at a separate moment where we were in private had revealed to me how much they hate it here. And I was like, why wasn't that what the first meeting was? It's like, you all secretly told me that you yes. hate it here. Why wasn't this first meeting? They're like, if you all could just talk about it, if you could break right? that bubble, it would be so much better. You all feel it, right? Yes. Uh, I Can I tell you, I, I refer to this sometimes with other learning and development people as like the creme brulee thing of like, instead yeah. of being like, oh, wow, like the top is so shiny and we're all going to do, you know, psychometric assessments and, and, and learn how to better give feedback using this framework and all these things like break that shell and there's some yeah. crap underneath, pardon me. <laughs> that's the work we should be doing. And instead we're doing this work that's like sitting on top of that. That is the, the kind of the cognitive, let's learn a framework on how to be more effective thing. And instead, no, like get at the thing that is actually the problem and work that like work the real problem, yeah. you know, and that doesn't, and by the way, this is like, I think kind of getting it back to the book is that like working that problem is very likely going to be unpleasant for yep. some people and yep. uncomfortable and, you know, and, and of course the hope is that at the end, there's, there's some kind of progress, you know, I, I don't know about resolution, but some kind of progress is what you're certainly hoping and aiming for, but that's not going to happen overnight. And, and that's okay. Like sitting in the muck is not only okay, it's needed. And, and that's how you get to the, the good stuff at the end. Like, cause I think I've certainly worked at places where I've had really 
really positive relationships with my coworkers that have actually lasted beyond the us working at that company. And I consider many of them friends. Yes. But I would also like work with them again, you know, yep. but I think that's because in many of those cases, we went through some hard stuff together and, and weren't afraid to do that and to struggle together. And we didn't try to coat over that <laughs> and just be like, we have great perks and benefits. But instead we, we were like, no, we're going to be in the muck yeah. and do the hard work and acknowledge that, you know, this day was really hard or I messed up today. And that actually solidified the, the trust. Yeah. Well, and maybe this is a weird um, analogy, but it reminds me of like being in a relationship in high school or something where like you, you decide you don't like you, you want to break up, but breaking up with someone is terrifying. So you just avoid doing it. I don't know if in the situation. Uh, <laughs> no, nobody, like, nobody ever did that. <laughs> okay. So like, it's just like, okay, you wait like months and it's just like, you know, you're not doing anyone any favors either. Like you talk about what's bothering you and you resolve it and you move yeah. forward or you realize that it's not resolvable. And then you both can like keep on living your lives. I, I think that's the other outcome. Nithya is, is like, okay, if we go into the muck, I mean, maybe we resolve these problems. Maybe we don't. I think it's not something that's yeah, yeah. Before, right? yeah. Yeah. If we don't, that at least lets us move forward with reality, right? Yes. Like, yes. Okay, yes. That's also a good that outcome. Aren't working for me yeah. and you, and we need a different solution. You, I need to be on another team or I need to leave this yes. org or whatever. I think you just waste everybody's time by pretending like nothing's wrong. Yeah. 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 I think one of the things that leaders have a tendency to not give people credit for is their willingness to step into work mm. that isn't great because leaders forget that we're all actually motivated to earn a living. <laughs> So whenever leaders are worried about, like, if we go into this place where we have these uncomfortable conversations, we're going to lose all our people because people want to be positive. Like, I just think it's not right. It's over and over and over again. I've seen in situations where I got people to say to each other, yeah, this kind of sucks right now in a meeting. And that has been the breakthrough that allowed creativity and problem solving to come to the surface. Because you can't, you can't solve the problem if you're not talking about it, right? right? Yeah. It's not going to like resolve itself on its own. Right. Um, and if you can't talk about it and you're hurting, I mean, this is the other thing is you get a team where in this work from home space, nobody comes on camera and they don't talk to each other and they're multitasking in the background. And it's because they don't think this team is going to be able to progress and they've given up and they're, mm -hmm. they're hopeless about actual progression, but they need the job and they need the money. So they're coming in and you've got presenteeism yeah. that, that they're getting paid for. And if you can break the logjam and get a few people talking about and just name we're disengaged because we've given up hope and just name that and say and then find the yearning and i wish it wasn't this way and then you've got the curiosity mm. what could we do if we if we name we're disengaged and we want not to be what can we do all of a sudden there's possibility that wasn't there before can I share a little pessimism too and theme with theme with the book? Uh, I think 100% all of that. I, something I have seen a couple of times now that makes me sad is mm -hmm. that the thing that prevents that team from moving forward is the person above them, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes this, this goes all the way up to the top. If the people in the top aren't going to change, it kind of doesn't matter what the small team does. Like they can make things better for themselves on the margins, but they can't change the main things that are making their lives miserable. And the people at the top either don't care, don't know, or they know and care, but like can't run a, a company-wide meeting where they're like, things suck because the like stock share will think they don't feel like they can be as honest about the reality of things because they're they're trying to pitch to investors and they're they're trying to like create this kind of sheen. I feel like sometimes that that public facing part of the top of organizations sometimes really conflicts with 
like just dealing with the stuff that actually your employees yeah, are going like through. Like the incentives are all kind yeah, of. Yeah, like I have no place. solution for that. The part of what Kate's talking about is like 100% works in these smaller groups, but I, I think I get dismayed when I see the thing happening on a bigger scale and I, I start to wonder like, okay, we've made all this progress today. What happens in six months when like the people at the top haven't changed at all? And that's where I really love executive coaching mm. because when I'm working with an executive in a one-on-one coaching session, that is often the only time that they feel safe enough to look at reality. Right. Yeah. That they're not going to do that in a bit in all hands. Right. If an executive knows how to hold in their own body, the I have to tell the future looking positive story and I have to acknowledge that we've had hard times, they can actually go into that meeting and say, so we've been through a rough time and here are the risks that we're facing and here's what we think we've got to do and here are the resources that we're going to bring to the problem and here's why we think that things are on an upward trajectory and can do it from a place of honesty. Mm -hmm. I, I remember this was years ago now, but I worked at a company that was going through a pretty tough time and was kind of in one of these turnaround situations. And I remember the CEO, who was also the founder, speaking to the whole company and in, in a really genuine way, right? Not in a put on way, saying to us, I know this is terrible and I'm sorry. And you could tell that this wasn't one of these rehearsed sort of, mm-hmm. I have to take ownership type of speeches. Like he, he just was like, this, this sucks. And I'm not going to sugarcoat that. And this is affecting real human lives. And, but, but then, you know, I think the, the ending of that was, but do I also think that, you know, once we take the time to process this, can we work towards something stronger and, and actually rebuild? Yeah. I actually think that that's possible too. And I thought that was such an effective way of being authentic and being honest and kind of doing the leadership thing of I'm the CEO and I have to kind of point the ship in, in the direction we're going. Like it was just a nice way of moving from the, the yeah. authentic, honest place to like, okay, then like, let's do the next thing together, like at the right pace. He also wasn't rushing us along like, and tomorrow we will. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. I, and I, I think, think that's, yeah. the, I think that's the key. I mean, the truth is if you're, if you're a public company, your SEC filings, if they're not accurate, you're in a big whole lot of trouble trouble. And if your SEC <laughs> filings are, are accurate, you're not hiding from investors that things suck. Yeah. And that's <laughs> scary. That's scary for it's people to be like, scary. I'm not going to hide this, you know, I'm, I'm going to. Everyone tries to spin it. I mean, I, that is so yeah. rare what you're talking about. Nick. Yeah. One thing I see in the leadership space that I don't think helps, sometimes there's this overemphasis on performance and, and it possibly is a demand side thing where like leaders want, how can I appear more authentic? And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, yes. it's not about performing authenticity. It's about being authentic. And I think thinking of all these things as a kind of show to kind of get what you want or to get the best outcome, I think is a really back backwards way of thinking about them sometimes. Um, well, I think it's, I think it's worse than that. I think it becomes actively manipulative and gaslighting. Yeah. yeah. Totally. yeah. I've, I've like seen it where leaders who I know feel actual pain about what's going on, then give this schmaltzy, I'm feeling your pain speech where it's like, you you actually do care about this, but somehow everyone left this meeting thinking that you don't care about it because what you did was like a kind of performance rather than yes. just like talk about how you're feeling, right? There's such a pressure on leaders to be this alpha male version of a CEO or whatever who's, you know, walking around with a little mic attached to their face and, and <laughs> projecting confidence all the time that like people don't even know how to like be regular humans. I think I've brought this up in the podcast before, but the myth about the alpha male is one of my other soapboxes because, oh, yeah. <laughs> because the guy who ch- coined the term, right? It comes from the, the his work with chimpanzees. And we're talking about long-term, short-term. Part of what he talks about in some of his more recent stuff that he talks about alpha males is the difference between the leader for a while who is treated well after the new young guy comes in and takes that role and the one who isn't. 
And the one who isn't is the one who strutted about doing all of the power stuff. And the one who is taken care of and who has power and influence once their body has aged out of that sort of prime physical strength piece, the one who functioned as breaker up of internal fights and mm -hmm. consoler in chief. Consoler in chief. I and here we are, right? And here yeah. we are in bittersweet again. And we're in the land of what got you here won't get you there. Like, yes, that leadership being willing to put yourself out there, being tough enough to take the slings and arrows of what it is to jockey for position in the competitive market. Yeah, that's super valuable, but it's actually not what gets people wanting to come along the ride for you. I think this notion that showing any kind of pain or suffering or whatever is like a kind of weakness. I remember I had a, I had a professor in college who had a, a tragedy that happened in her private life and she missed one week and she came the next week and just explained what had happened and just sat there kind of weeping the whole time, but was totally comfortable that she was doing that. And mm. it was one of the strongest things I've ever seen where I'm like, yeah. I'm like, like this person is so confident and comfortable being themselves and, and just sitting with the pain they're in and not like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Right. Like they were just like, yeah, this is how I'm feeling. Like there's nothing more strong than just like owning reality. Yeah. Right. I think, I think the part of the, part of the fear with people who are in a toxic masculine kind of mode of being in the world is their fear is that the alternative is toxic femininity and toxic femininity is that powerless, like, please take care of me. Mm -hmm. And I'm so helpless. And so I have to be like little and like pretend to be powerless because I don't actually have the ability to just stand up and yeah. be who I am. The thing for me about bittersweet and the sort of yes and and the simultaneousness of the both is like part of what allows masculinity to not be toxic and femininity to not be toxic is actually to be integrated. Yeah, exactly. I actually, you know, as, as you both were talking, I was reminded of something from my class with you, Rick, which I doubt you remember because it was years ago and you work with a lot of different students, but this really stayed with I'm going to pretend that I do no matter what. <laughs> okay, cool. I, I mean, like, really, like, like, wow, he always remembers my name. Like, I... <laughs> exactly. I was sitting with somebody and the scene and the situation that we were doing was it was it was two people on a date and I could just feel that although there was some momentum it felt a little weird and 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 Rick kind of jumped in at that moment and was like hey how does this feel right now like just the two of you like on this quote unquote date right how does this feel and both my scene partner and I were like it feels awkward <laughs> and and Rick was like okay well just just kind of just kind of be awkward then just be awkward like don't 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 have this awkward thing hanging over you and try to be something else with each other. Like if it's awkward, just be, you could say it if you want. I mean, he didn't, you know, we didn't say this is so awkward, although I guess we could have, but it was more like, just be that whatever it is, be that. And then I think what I found most interesting was probably two things. One, once we just decided to be awkward, A, it was funnier <laughs> for me and others, especially for me, I was laughing, which like you're not supposed to do, but I was like breaking constantly laughing. But anyway, it was not only was it funnier, but I think the other thing was it, it, it actually moved into a different emotion later, right? Like if we had tried to force yeah. it into now we're actually, you know, we are getting along and this is going well, like it, it wouldn't have worked. But the fact that we were like, let's just be awkward together, actually moved that scene and that interaction into like, oh, huh, we're like weirdly getting along. <laughs> One reason I don't remember this specific scene is because it's happened so often. This is yeah. common. <laughs> is, um, is, you know, two people be like, we're best friends. And it's like, are you best friends? Is that what best friends sound like? You know, it sounds like two people who wish they were best friends, but aren't. Yeah. 
And that's a different scene than you maybe thought you were, you were entering into. And maybe one that's a little more complex and a little more nuanced. And like, yeah, you maybe come into the scene thinking we're going to have a great date, but then it's like kind of, you're feeling kind of awkward and you're thinking, oh, I'm just like messing up the scene. But really it's just like, well, if this was really happening to these people, how would they really be feeling? They would be thinking, oh my God, this date is not going well or, you know, yes. whatever. And so all that it takes to make the scene well is just to accept that that's the case, you know, to just like, you know, align your brain with what's actually going on. And then, and then that's why it got funny was just because you were on the same page with the audience. Yes. Um, and a lot of what gets laughed in improv is not jokes. It's, it's, it's an acknowledgement of reality. It's just yeah. like feeling a certain way and then saying like, I, I feel blank. And people are like, you do feel blank. Like they're just, they're just kind of just a, re- a relation of we're all watching it kind of like a flower that is like a bulb. And then we're all watching it kind of open up together. We're all getting to discover like what the inside looks like, like at the same time. Right. Um, so yeah, it's like when you actually acknowledge it, then we could see the whole scene move forward with a more like authenticity and then whatever it turns into is going to be much more interesting to everybody in the room. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think that's a great comparison. Because it is just about accepting it. Uh, being like, oh, this is kind of awkward or like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this versus just like, no, this is going great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think this thing about humor and like what's funny in improv is really, really worth taking a moment on because one of the things that I've been really thinking about a lot in the last couple of years is how much humor in the workplace is toxic. The thing that becomes brilliant when we actually mature to a mature humor in an organization. There's a lot of humor that is defensive. I'm going to make fun of myself so that I get used to what it's like to be made fun of so that it doesn't hurt me so much when you make fun of me, which is deeply toxic. That's like, I hate myself so much <laughs> that I'm going to hate on me first. Like that's deeply, I, I'm okay. Deeply I'm okay toxic. with that when people like need humility. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, like I'm not even okay. Like I'm because if they need humility and they're doing that, it's totally fake. And I'm just like, get over yourself and go away. Yeah, I want nothing yeah, to do yeah, with yeah. you. <laughs> right. The, the other thing, like the conversation about, you know, punching down is cruel. Punching up is okay. I'm like, punching up is not okay. It's just that it's safer. Hmm. It still is cruel. Like secondhand embarrassment. How many sitcoms are actually, I'm going to sit here watching you slip on the banana peel so that I feel superior because I hmm. didn't sit on the slip on the banana peel. Like it. Can I give an example though about, so I, I was um uh, coming back to also like kind of turning, turning pain into, you know, art. Um, It was in a scene of, uh, uh, class nine many many years ago um sorry that i remember the scene and not the scene you were describing but yeah. um the it was four people that were doing a group scene and it was a it was a four, four female improvisers and it was a anger management was the, the thing that some, someone initiated it saying okay welcome to anger management and let's start and just go down and talk about why you're here <clears throat> and the first person you know the, this what the scene turns into it kind of depends on the first couple moves right so the first person could have said like oh i punched somebody or whatever right but but they were like well um you know we were about to put out a product that was dangerous and i spoke up in a meeting and i was used to of being too opinionated and I was sent to anger management and the whole thing of the scene became these are just women who like were doing their job and that that that, that meant that they were angry you know what I mean? <laughs> that to me is what is punching up right your the scene has a point of view we're not making fun of quote unquote like the, the women who are going to anger management we're making fun of the system or the people in power or whatever the thing is right so it doesn't necessarily have to be targeted at an individual just the scene has to have a kind of all good scenes that are funny and, and jokes too they have a kind of moral center they have a point of view that where we're like oh yeah that's the world as I see it we're like it does suck Versus if, if you imagine the opposite scene where it was like the scene was played as if like, oh man, like women just can't handle themselves in the workplace. It would have felt so deeply gross and uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Because the, the scene would now be not only punching down, but also punching without like a real a real heart to it, a real opinion to it, you know? Um, yeah. I also think there's a big difference between punching the system and punching the people in the system. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, right? and like humor doesn't have to come at the expense of someone. I think often humor is just about acknowledging the reality or, or like we're setting up the AV thing and I'm like, man, this thing could be more complicated. And we're all like kind of sharing a laugh based on the thing we're going 
through. You know, I think sometimes people think about humor as jokes directed at one individual or, or, or at myself versus most of the stuff that I find funny is just like, man, what a weird situation. <laughs> or like, right. like why is yes. it like that? You know? And yeah. Like, and it's in that bittersweet, poignant mm-hmm. space that that kind of humor happens. I'm completely spacing on, but I've been thinking the details of, but I've been thinking of the, the Buddha story of the vinegar ta- tasters sort of all through this conversation. I can't remember sort of who the first two people are, but the third person is the the master Buddhist who tastes the vinegar and just like has a little smile because the vinegar is the vinegar as the vinegar should be. Like it's tart and it's sour mm. and it's and it's vinegar. And so it's worth smiling over the vinegar in its vinegarness mm. rather than tasting it and being like, oh, this is so bitter. This is like, I can't like. I, well, also like this is so bitter, but then also that which we hear a lot with toxic positivity is like, why isn't this more like honey? Right. Or like, right. Yeah. Right? like right. this should be sweet. It's like, oh God, no, that should. Vinegar. Like yeah, the yeah. whole idea that the world should be good. The number of people who are like, progress should look like this. And then progress doesn't look like this. And so now we're all up in our stuff about it. Things just emerge. They go the way they go. Everything is perfect. Not because everything is a utopia, but because there's no other way for things to be than how they are. You saw this a lot with the pandemic too, where they're like, scientists said, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, the virus changed. It sucks. <laughs> right? Like yeah, watching, watching, watching yeah. the pandemic science emerge in real time and how many people sort of really struggled with, okay, this is emerging new knowledge. Like, it's hard. Yeah. yeah, it makes me think about what kinds of leaders do we elevate, put on pedestals, look up to, and which ones do we, I'm saying we broadly, tend to doubt or push aside. It's really sad to me that when we see leaders such as in, in kind of the, the pandemic science or even just in politics or anywhere really, um, in movies, the moment we see doubt or lack of 100% certainty, or indeed um, a little yeah. complaining about something, you know, or a little bit of, you know, kind of righteous outrage of some kind or a little disappointment in the collective culture, like they kind of go down a notch. In my mind, they should go up a notch when that happens, right? But we we are like, if you're not posting constantly optimistic quotes on Instagram for me, like I got I got nothing, right? Like if you're going to tell me like it is, like I don't like you very much anymore. Confidence and expressing doubt are orthogonal to each other, potentially. So many of the leaders we do see are the people who are putting themselves out there to be seen the most. And I think that is a big problem. The people who tend to be the loudest in the space are the ones who are the most emotional and who tend to attract the most people to like click on their thing and deliver the most confident, like, here's how you can be, you know, hustle culture and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, someone being like, you know, let's just be a little more empathetic, like isn't going to get like a million clicks. Right. There's this wonderful story in this book about this guy named Tim that just really, really resonated with me. He was a venture capitalist and he was not going for the people he thought were the best with the best potential. He was going for the people Mm. who appreciated his creativity and gave him the adoration that he (laughs) needed. And so actually he was going for the people who were least likely to see because (laughs) they didn't have the sort of go get it. I'm I'm going to get out there piece. Somewhere at some point, I read that confidence comes from being able to tell a good story, not from competence. And that like landed with me like, oh, yeah, like, so it's a good story to say things suck right now. And here's how we can move forward. Right? Like, that's a good story. Yeah, I think what I think about, I feel pretty confident in what I do, like as a teacher and facilitator. I've been doing it for a long, long time. And I failed at it over and over and over and over again. And like, you learn, you know, each time you mess something up, you like get a little better at it. And one, I think about myself as a younger teacher, younger performer, stepping into a space, wanting to belong and feeling I had to kind of 
prove that versus I, I just don't feel that at all anymore that, you know, if I go into a classroom and someone's like not digging it, it's like, that's fine. Like, it doesn't make me think, oh God, I'm a bad teacher. Yeah. I think, okay, well, I'm going to keep trying to like help connect this person to this thing, but I'm not going to get hundred percent approval from everybody all the time. You know, I find that people who even get 99% approval often feel like they're messing up because just like one person gave negative feedback <laughs> on the thing, you know, when you talk to people who really know what they're doing, everyone's trying to pr- create the perception that they really, really know what they're doing, even when they don't. So the, yeah. it, it is sometimes we're drawn to the people who are shouting the most real confident people are not trying to convince you, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta listen to them. You know, they're just kind of like, well, you know, in they, my they know here's, they here's know. Blah, blah, blah. it could be blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, who's to say, <laughs> right? Like, right. I mean, one of the things as a coach is you're trying to sell yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And coaches who make the most splash are the ones who come in and say, I've got a solution for your problem. <laughs> and the coaches that are most effective say, we can find the solution to your problem together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that doesn't sell nearly so well. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, yeah. It, the, the way someone represents themselves and their work and the way they show up is usually a good sign of how they're going to approach your problem also, right? If they can sit with nuance in themselves and in their work and, and don't speak in those absolutes, it's, it's at least an indicator that they'll be able to sit with nuance in whatever's going on in your team or whatever. So I think it's, it's such an important point in, in kind of looking at who you who you hire. And I think this is a cultural thing. Like my partner and I were just on vacation in Sweden. We have a bunch of friends who live there now and we, we met some people there. And one thing that multiple people mentioned was like that, oh, in Sweden, people are very non-boastful and very, very suspicious of people who are, who are boastful. And, and one of our friends was a re- resume writer and it was a constant struggle to get Swedish folks to like actually list their accomplishments like on the thing. Because it's like, oh, I don't want to come off too much, right? This is what, what people were telling us. And it's just like, it's like, I wish we had more. I wish we had a little more, not to that extreme. I wish we had like a little more of that. But I think we should be more suspicious of people who are constantly touting their own yeah. achievements or constantly going out of the way to tell everybody how great they are. Because um, at least it feels like my timeline or my awareness of other people's timeline is, is full of a bunch of people who kind of, kind of don't know anything about anything, but are like the most confident. I'm thinking of like the Jordan Peterson types who are just like, this person right. doesn't really, really know anything about anything, but is like the most confident person who's like shouting over everyone. And obviously a lot of people recognize that they're full of it, but enough people are kind of taken by that that we don't we don't have a kind of baseline like oh I should be kind of suspicious when someone is like really overconfident and really trying to sell me really hard I, yeah. I, know, we, I think we, we we don't quite have as much of a cultural thing here of like seeing like well what does that person kind of get out of me or like why why might they be trying to talk to me in that way um, yeah I mean it, there's there's some critical thinking certainly that goes into that I mean I think you, you're pointing to the cultural differences and I think some of it too is just if we're more critical in the best way of what we hear and what we read and the people we meet I think this came up when we um we did think again. Uh, Adam Grant's book that, mm. that came up a fair yeah. bit of, of just Love like that. actually question question what you're hearing and seeing and like not to the point of being totally obnoxious and like believing nothing right but actually having that healthy skepticism of well hang on like what could be behind this let me not just accept what's coming at me but I think it also requires a little bit of an understanding of, of human psychology just basic level to be able to have that skepticism and say like you know what actually there could be something else going on here that I am receiving in one way but like there's something else going on it just requires that like zooming out a bit um, and not just not reacting, you know, quickly. And then I think you brought up Jordan Peterson. It, it made me think of something else that stuck out for me in the book, which is this, this thing of, you know, we live in very politicized times. We live in a time of extremes, frankly. And I think we live in a time in history where um, engaging with other people, whether at work or not at work, who have different beliefs from us is increasingly harder. I mean, I, I won't pretend it was ever easy, probably. But I think now it's harder and harder and harder because I think we we sort of shut down, right? When when someone is saying something we don't agree with or, or holding beliefs we don't espouse, 
there's this immediate sense of, I think empathy falls away first, first of all, but also I think Susan King brings up like every single person we meet, whether we agree with them or not, you know, whether they infuriate us or not, um, you know, they have suffered or they will. And, and that I think is this really, sure. It sounds like it can go on a Hallmark card, right? Everyone has suffered. And so like, let's (laughs) all just get along. But I, but I think there is something deeper there. What if we were to see these people in in my case, who definitely infuriate me (laughs) and, and see them as like people who have also suffered or will suffer. What does that do to the level of engagement, right? I don't think Susan Cain is getting at like, because everybody has suffered or will suffer, like let's feel bad for them. I think she's getting at, it actually opens up lines of communication. And I'm curious what you both think about that. Yes. Another former student of mine is Dylan Marin. He has an amazing podcast. He also has a book now. He started this podcast called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. I don't know if you've heard it. I've heard of it. I've heard of it. I really, really, really recommend it. Um, So he was making these videos, these kind of unboxing social justice concept videos online that were like, he was unboxing like gay rights or unboxing like police brutality, you know, like how people would unbox the new iPad or whatever, right? So, huh. so these were, these got pretty popular and also understandably, not understandably, but predictably uh, attracted a lot of like hate. Uh, and he would get mm. these really hateful comments. He's, um, he's queer. So like people would write these really awful things. And he started reaching out to them being like, hey, can I interview you? And would ask <laughs> them, why did you write that? And talk to them. And they are really interesting conversations. And it's amazing how often it's like someone who's 17 and they're like, I get bullied at school. I never thought you would see this. And I was just feeling really angry. And I don't even know why I wrote it. Like, mm. um, it's a lot of people who are in pain. And one of his big takeaways is, is you can empathize with someone without agreeing about what they did. Mm-hmm. His thing is never, oh, it's okay that this person did this, or that's, a, I agree that they should have done that. I can still disagree with that while still seeing them as a person and like feeling right. pain for them, that we can hold both of those things at the same time. And I think wow. that's what you're talking about, Nithya. This is like, yeah, can I see someone as a person who's gone through pain w- without being like, therefore, it's okay that you did this bad yeah, thing. Yeah, like, yeah. You, you, you know, I can still totally disagree with what you're doing and, and not like make excuses for your bad beliefs or your bad behaviors. Because I think if you don't see the other person as, as a human or as a person who goes through pain, I think you're really closing off the ability, however unlikely, to like learn something or reconcile or connect in any way, shape, or form. I'm not saying that's always going to happen. Even if you see someone as like, okay, I understand you're going through pain, there still might be like, shut up, Lib, or whatever, yeah. <laughs> right? But <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Without that, there's, there's, if you're just like, yeah, yeah. okay, you're stupid and awful. I mean, no one, no one's ever, no one's ever like, oh wow, you're really right. I am stupid and awful. Yeah. You gosh, you've, you've changed my mind forever, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people change their own minds through compassion. Nobody yeah. ever changes somebody else's mind. They put things up there that other people wrestle with and may change their own minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the only way to create a space in which you can be heard so that that is possible for them to take in what you're saying is to see them as a person because otherwise their defenses go right up. Yeah. And I think this is part of what um, Sharon Salzberg is, is pointing towards in the book Real Change that we discussed recently. And I think that the piece that she gets to and some of the people that we've talked about uh, emotional intelligence with get to that's really important is this isn't intellectual. This is actually about sort of feeling. It's actually about opening your heart to them as a person and holding the boundary on the behavior, not the the person. Um, yeah, well said. Which is tough because you have to draw those lines. I've definitely had situations where I have to kick someone out of class. Yep. I mean, it's, it's a one in a thousand situation, but it's like, you know, I'm creating space for you. I'm trying to work with you. But like at a certain point, your behavior is so so harmful to the other people. I can't be worried about you at the expense of all the harm you're causing to other people. So it's just like, you gotta go. But there's a lot of middle ground in there, which is like, can we find a way you yeah. can be a part of this, you know, and, and get out of this? And, you know, I, I'm thinking of students who've done or said things where it's like, okay, this, that's not really appropriate. And here's, here's X, Y, Z. And I think, I think if everyone would ever uh, crossed a line like that, I kind of kicked out of class. It would be a, a small class and it would be <laughs> one of those things where I don't, I think even most people would be pretty uncomfortable because it'd be so stressed about touching the fence. Just yeah. Yep. Once the wrong thing. yeah. No one knows yeah. everything about everything and no 
everyone has access to every possible person's experience. But it's that thing of like, how do you respond when you're given that information, right? So if you're not willing to like work and be like, oh, okay, I need to change my behavior, then like not at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like we're not and- we're gonna sit here and create all the space for you and just like ruin our experience so that you can like stomp on it for us. And in in the workplace, it's complicated by the fact that the person probably has some technical skill. That's why they got the job in the first place. And depending on the circumstances, losing that could be really, really problematic. I'm remembering a play that I directed where I had trouble getting enough men in the cast. One of the men that I cast, I knew he was going to be trouble when I cast him, but I needed to have him as a male body on stage because otherwise the script needed to be cut. Sure enough, he was exactly the kind of trouble that I expected (laughs) when I hired him. By letting him be who he was and having the rest of the cast, like helping the rest of the cast do a show that included him as he was, we got through it. The audience didn't notice Mm. the problem and none of those actors will ever work with him again if given a choice. (laughs) All of those things are true. Right? They're all true. Yeah. Yeah. How are we feeling? I just want to do a pulse check. I could talk to the two of you forever. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? All right. So are we ready to move to Thinkaways? We are ready to move to Thinkaways. My Thinkaway comes from a very specific quote that I actually wrote down from the book that I just loved. We transcend grief only when we realize how connected we are with all the other humans who struggle to transcend their own grief. And that to me was so incredibly powerful because there are a hundred different books and classes and things to help people get through grief. And and some of them work and some don't and who knows, but this one sentence, I think captured it for me. It's not about like, do these things to transcend grief or, or or whatever emotion it is that you're looking to transcend. It's actually realize how interconnected we all are. And the fact that you're not alone in that feeling, not, not that everyone has experienced exactly what you've experienced, but everyone has experienced some form of that emotion in this case, grief. And that, that itself, that's the tool actually to transcend that extremely painful period. It's just, it's so powerful. I mean, there it's, it's spiritual. It's, you know, definitely harkens back to Sharon Salzberg as well. And some of the other stuff we've read uh, around interconnectedness and how that is actually the, the key to moving from a place of pain to a place of wholeness and integration and, and sort of onto the next thing in your life. Not only from the book, but the conversation we had too, it's just the, the like, I do like the honest leader and what does that really look like? And, and I think it was interesting how much we kept coming back to that, that idea of authenticity and, and, and kind of merging these, these ideas of um, being positive and supportive while also not like lying <laughs> about, about the negative stuff in the world. So yeah, and I think I'm always interested in the kind of practicality of a lot of that. Cause I think a lot of these concepts kind of big picture in a book are like, oh yeah, I should do that. And then it's like, okay, I'm now in a meeting. And this person just said that their cousin passed away over the weekend. And uh, well, how do I respond to, to this? And what do I do in the meeting? Do I hold a lot of space for it in which I should maybe might make the person feel like really put on the spot? Do I ask them how they're feeling? Do I move on really quickly? What, what do I do? You know, like I think being able to, to kind of do both of those things at the same time is, is, uh, is yeah. my thinking. Some of this book was really uh, challenging me to kind of explore. Mm. I have like so many places that I want to go with this choice. Narrowing it down to sort of one think away is, is I'm finding challenging. And I, so I think I'm not going to, I'm going to do two. Um, the first Cheating. is sort of in that meeting 
session, one of the most profound things that I was ever taught was that you can be having a bad day and lead a really good meeting Mm -hmm. without denying that you're having a really bad day. You can just be low energy and committed to the outcome and show up committed to the outcome without denying the bad energy, the the low energy that you have. Um, So that's really an offering for our listeners. The real takeaway for me, I think, for the book is the reminder that grief is the cost of love and longing is the cost of creativity. We have no reason to be creative if we aren't longing for something different. And if we are willing to love something in a world that's impermanent, we will grieve when it changes. Oh, that's good. Mm. (laughs) I'm feeling some feelings. (laughs) I am so, so grateful for being brought this book. Yay. I'm so glad. Yeah. And Rick, you're the best. Thank you for this. Yes. Yes. Like this this was so awesome. Like the bestest. I can Um, relate things to improv all day, every day. And and I do. That's my job. This was super fun. Yeah, really, really, really great book. And thanks so much for for thinking of me for joining as a guest. I really appreciate it. Of course. And I want to give our listeners the chance to follow your work elsewhere outside of this. So where can people find you? So I have a flip phone, so I'm not on Instagram or (laughs) Twitter or TikTok, (laughs) but I am on LinkedIn. So you can find me, Rick Andrews on LinkedIn. I have a website, Rick Andrews Improv, which is uh, about the corporate trainings and work that I do. And the bread and butter improv is uh, at the Magnet Theater. So you can go to magnettheater.com. I'm in a show uh, most Sundays at 7.30 with uh, my good friend, Lewis Kornfeld called Cornfeld and Andrews. It's really fun. Come by, say hi. That was Leadership Arts Review. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It really helps us get the word out there. Tell two friends. Also, be sure to follow us at Leadership Arts Review on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn to get the latest updates. Our website is podcast.leadershipartsreview.com. Leadership Arts Review is a Four Impala production. Music adapted from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license.